0: Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined, as always, by Dmitri Kalyugin. We are coming to you in the midst of the ground operation, it seems, to have begun, not begun, in Israel and Gaza. Uh, we're going to give you all the details on that, because it seems that Israel is perhaps waffling on a real incursion that they made and they seem to have taken losses Uh, Hamas has claimed that the ground invasion has has failed and they've retreated of course Israel has not claimed that they've started it yet very much a Ukraine type situation so the whole region is up in arms Turkey and Iran making bellicose comments of course the carrier groups are in the eastern Mediterranean and now South America and other countries are getting involved in the impending energy wars that the possible closing of the Persian Gulf could bring World War 3 truly has arrived everybody Dimitri how are you doing?
1: Doing great, Conrad. Of course, things have begun escalating in Gaza Strip as in the northern corners, we see, of course, Israeli military forces finally moving in after three long weeks of you know, delays, rains, rhetorical battles. But finally, it seems like they're actually forcing some probing operations on the ground, including with Merkava tanks, armored units. And this is all followed by at least heavy bombardment by uh, Israeli fighter planes and bombers. Naturally, like we've been, it's been reported that close to 100 bombs have been dropped on the Gaza Strip just in the last 48 hours. So, in fact, things have really. Escalated out of proportion. Naturally, most countries are reacting in in a positive light towards the Palestinians, actually supporting the people of Gaza, you know, with humanitarian aid where they can. But mostly through political rhetoric, as almost all humanitarian aid, in terms of it actually arriving in Gaza, has been shut off by the Israelis. Everything must pass through Israel, and can only get in there through their permission. So unfortunately, the humanitarian crisis continues, and despite all of the calls of the United Nations and other international bodies, Israel is not budging. It has uh, completely elected to deal with this issue on its own accords. And essentially, Hamas has been labeled as uh, as being on death row. So Hamas essentially is is labeled as the enemy number one, and Israel will be dealing with it once and for all. That is at least rhetorically what Netanyahu has been. Um, that's kind of what he's providing us with in terms of uh, his speeches, And it's all quite evident that he's out for blood. And I think the Israeli people are still very vengeful, even three weeks in.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're seeing last night, Rebar reported that although the Israelis claim that no ground operation has been carried out yet based on the attack vectors, we are now witnessing at the very least large-scale multiple raids from the northern, eastern, and southern directions. We've seen clips of the IDF Navy firing at the Gaza coast in the eastern Mediterranean. Again, like we know U.S. carriers are out there. We know Hezbollah and other groups have missiles that are capable of hitting ships that are in the eastern Mediterranean. So the IDF is clearly they don't care about playing with fire in that regard they have don't they don't care about dragging the u s into this with a possible you know USS Maine possible type operation like we saw in Vietnam going on in the eastern Mediterranean to get the U.S. involved in a full-on war with Iran. But as all of this is going on, it seems that indeed the information war is is only heating up and may be actually the hottest front amidst all of this. Because as we speak, the internet towards Gaza has been completely cut off. You're going to be seeing less and less videos coming out of there. You've probably already noticed that there's less and less videos and this is from the order of St George they've been trying to reach their contact at St Porfirio's Orthodox Church in northern Gaza Gaza City all morning that's been over 24 hours now so they haven't been able to reach them so the communication situation is really not looking good so expect Israel to increase frankly their civilian bombings because the less video they've already they've they've weathered a big storm of of you know anti-Israeli propaganda and things with these videos coming out just brutal brutal children and people torn apart and and wounded and that's done a big blow to Israel's international reputation so hopefully they hope that they can move in on this ground invasion which will undoubtedly kill thousands more civilians as of now the death count is at 7700 over 3,100 children killed in Gaza so this is a real tragedy and of course now that there's no internet to report on this the accountability is going to be even lower and this is what Medvedev said on Twitter about the situation he said Israel keeps postponing its ground operation in Gaza that's mostly due to the US pressure and apprehensions of the global south's outcry one shouldn't get deluded, however the ground operation will take place and the consequence will be hard and bloody Moloch keeps demanding more and more sacrifices and the mechanism of reciprocal violence is going to grind on for years besides The West's gotten really tired of Ukraine and now is eagerly supporting Israel. Even the new Speaker of the House of Representatives, Mike Johnson, made aiding Tel Aviv a priority. Shouldn't it be better to revive the Middle East peace process and try to abide by the UN Security Council Resolution 242 from 1976 or even follow the initial partition plan for Palestine, approved by the UN General Assembly in 1947? These are all rhetorical questions, of course. It's much more fun to split the dough for the others' war far away from the U.S. The war must go on, so Medvedev calling out, you know, the warmongers within Israel and in the U.S. And he's always the one using rhetoric in the information war to try to, to try to push it to make sure that people realize that they're taking it seriously. But, yeah, I mean, as of now, it's kind of ambiguous whether or not the ground operation has started. But either way, they conducted the biggest airstrikes, like you said, they, they've ever done in the war up until this point, right before these ground operations. So it seems that, at the very least, it will likely happen very soon if hasn't already started.
1: Yeah, and the strategy does make sense, right? You mentioned shutting off uh, the Gaza strip from the internet because, as we see, most of the international support, whether it's from Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Iran, even from countries in Eastern Europe like Belarus, Russia, and even, you know, you can say countries of the global south, those members of BRICS, everyone who's negatively reacted towards Israel has done so because of the footage has been so gnarly and so explicit that's come out of Gaza. You know, as you mentioned, over 3,000 children confirmed to be dead, many thousands more wounded simply from the airstrikes. You can consider hospitals are overcrowded people are just carrying their kids in their hands or on carts i mean cars aren't you know there aren't there aren't pretty much no functional cars they've probably run out of petrol for it's been three weeks exactly since the uh you know, since petrol stations are probably run out of fuel in the Gaza Strip, so in fact we're seeing a humanitarian crisis of unprecedented scale, and Israel is, uh, you know, not held accountable by anyone. In fact, I think its hands are completely untied given the United given the United States' presence in the Mediterranean, and the fact that the U.S. has failed to condemn any any of these operations, including this one happening right now, sort of at the end of October here in 2023. Now, exactly what the outcome will be, I think, will uh, will be determined and by I think Israel's uh, way Israel carries out this operation you know going into Gaza at the moment will it in fact uh, continue its bombardment will it you know reinforce certain suburbs in northern Gaza and simply wait and maybe push forward on in a very like turtle-like fashion slowly and maybe allow for even refugees like these millions of people who have been mentioned hundreds and thousands of refugees from northern Gaza to actually move further south and actually give them time to to leave perhaps the Hamas militants behind which I think that would be probably the the most humanitarian strategy that Israel could employ here, if we're speaking about like this particular operation not being some massive Canaan type human sacrifice operation, but in fact being dedicated towards you know actually freeing gaza from the from the hamas militants so i guess the reality of it we will see once israel actually begins the operation full fold now uh, of course the jordanian and egyptian military so the two countries bordering israel on its south and east have been put on high alert frankly and it's not because of the uh, the threat of israel no no they've been put on high alert because of palestinian refugees so refugees from both the west bank and gaza have of course headed for the egyptian and the jordanian borders uh, you know you know, with all due respect, these two countries have shown themselves to be very staunch allies of Israel in recent decades. And now, of course, you know, these militaries being put on high alert and the border guards being told not to allow any Palestinian displacement into these territories of Jordan and Egypt. I mean, it's very sad on one hand, because these These are actual refugees. They're not economic migrants that we see in Europe. They're not not the Muslim immigrants coming over from Tunisia and Libya into Italy, for example. This is actual wartime refugees who are threatened with death by the Israeli state, and they simply cannot escape. And In fact, the northern border is nowhere near safe. They can't travel north through Israeli-dominated territory simply because um, in northern Israel, the, the fighting continues not as hot as in Gaza. But again, Lebanese citizens are dying. Uh, members of Hezbollah are being bombed by Israeli air forces and Hezbollah is being mobilized. Of course, it really hasn't entered into into the fray collectively with its tens of thousands of troops. I mean, some of the numbers you mentioned last week, 50 to 100,000 potential Hezbollah recruits are ready and waiting in Lebanon in order to strike from the north on Israel, but again the Palestinians are in a bit of a, a bit of a situation. They're, they're really, there's really nowhere for them to go. And as we saw in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, when there is when there are clear pathways for refugees and immigrants to travel down, you could easily get well. Not saying this is good, but the Armenians that left the Azerbaijani-held territories, over 150,000 of them, managed to move within a week. Right? So we, we know for sure that large, large amounts of people can actually move from one place to another with seemingly no particular issues, given that you know the corridors are open. Now we don't see any corridors here. All we see is essentially death and further bombardment and invasion. And the Palestinians are probably scared for their lives. now they're cut off from the internet, unable to plead for, for safety from the international community or any of the uh, allied states from overseas. Well, at least Azerbaijan and Aliyev didn't
0: bomb the Lachin Corridor while the 150,000 Karabakh Armenians were running away like the Israelis did to the Rafah border crossing down in Egypt, right? I mean, look, we're no—we've seen the videos of the Azeri shooters shooting crosses. We've seen the empty videos of Stepanakert. It's literally empty. The area's been entirely ethnically cleansed. Yet we have Pashinyan saying he doesn't want to recognize the Karabakh Armenians as refugees, so not sure what their status currently is at all, but— yeah, very, very apt comparison, similar, similar situation for sure. And Jordan and Egypt, I mean, they've said that the, the forced displacement of over a million Palestinians into their territory, they would view that as an act of war by Israel because they know that those people could be used to, you know, disrupt and, you know, try to I mean, those countries aren't all allies with Iran and Iran could use any number of those Palestinians in those group of people to help disrupt, you know, like the Egyptian government try to get a more favorable Iranian power in some of these places, any sort of things like that could happen. But speaking of Iran, they're, of course, the most relevant place Player Here, Iran and Turkey, they're really leading the charge on this rhetoric and Iran, you know, Turkey, maybe even going farther with the rhetoric, but Iran, they're backing it up with actions as far as their, their, uh, their Shia militias in Iraq are fully united as the, you know, the Iraqi resistance. They've, they, they've been attacking US bases in Iraq and Syria with drones, loitering munitions, even some missiles. So it's, it's, it's very fascinating to see how Iran's, you know, kind of Shia crescent is activated in the region. And, of course, Lukashenko commented on that, saying, if the Americans start bombing from the Mediterranean with airstrikes and aircraft carriers, although I don't think they are that crazy, Iran will respond and sink them. So Lukashenko, he knows the situation. He knows that Iran, they are the safe, at this point, the the safeguard of the Palestinians getting fully genocided. If Iran wasn't there, uh, the Gaza Strip, I think, would already have been completely turned into a parking lot. So... You may you may think the Iranian regime is evil, but as far as holding back just an objective like Dimitri said, a sort of Malokian sacrifice, the Iranians are the ones in the region kind of kind of holding on to that. And their proxies are even more <laughs> their proxies are even more exuberant than they are, frankly, the Houthis. It's it's just a never ending show with the Houthis, isn't it? I mean, they have launched missiles over the Red Sea towards Israel, all the way from western Yemen, over all the that's the entirety of the Red Sea. They tried to launch missiles and this is like an insurgent you know, sub-state group that only controls like a fifth of a already ba- very very poor country, and they've just the Houthi movement has developed such an anti-Israel, anti-Zionist, anti-United States. I mean, frankly, anti-Semitic, anti anti-Zog kind of attitude towards towards politics and towards metapolitics, and they've they haven't just launched missiles at Alat, the southern most city in israel of i think those missiles accidentally landed in egypt so good try but uh, they also attacked the eritrean red sea archipelago which has an israeli base on it yeah this is reported by eritrean military sources uh this is the dalak base in eritrea the dalak islands are where israel has one of its outposts farthest away from israel it's the biggest idf base outside of israel proper and they use it as a main lookout on the red sea they have dozens of planes stationed there actually they've They've used that to attack Egypt in wars in the past, and this base was attacked by the Houthis. Of course, Eritrea right across the Red Sea from from Yemen, and the, this base on top, this lookout post on top of a mountain, was shelled and bombed by Houthi forces. So the Houthis have declared a multi-front battle against against Israel. They, you know, they were able to defeat Saudi Arabia and the U.S. is proxy war against them in Yemen, and I guess they're feeling pretty confident. So. The Houthis are leading the charge as far as Iranian proxies go, of course. Hezbollah, they're keeping the pressure on, but they're very wary because the government of Lebanon is not supporting them in their potential, you know, war against Israel. They're very wary. The government of Lebanon represents the rest of the people of Lebanon that have no interest in seeing another civil war, another war with Israel and getting displaced again. So it's an understandable position, of course. And of course, we see Assad, you know, in Syria, still U.S. bases in Syria, and US I mean Joe Biden he responded to some of those shellings by the by the United Shia Front in in Iraq that has attacked both US bases you know other other regime bases in the region and Biden basically addressed Congress and told them that you know we've conducted 15 20 strikes on multiple bases around the region and they basically said that this is how you know this is how we're going to be engaging Iran he is very much not talking about direct strikes on Iranian territory like the Israelis are. So the fact that, you know, this front is increasing, we're, I think, relocating more and more troops into CENTCOM, you know, U.S. Central Command in the Middle East. We only have 2,000 troops in Syria, a few thousand troops in Iraq, a few thousand troops in Jordan, Lebanon, and these places. And that's going to get increased. We're going to be beefing up some of these bases, I think, because the air defenses on these things aren't very good. We've seen 30 plus injuries, one casualty from, I think, a heart attack that happened in the midst of in the midst of the attack. So there have been casualties on the American side in this so far. So, you know, we're in it. America is at this point, it's entirely up to the State Department and frankly, Israel, how much I mean, we know Anthony Blinken, he identifies as a Jew first, Secretary of State second. So as far as Israel is concerned, the ball's in their court as far as the American military, his involvement goes.
1: Yeah, I find that quite bizarre. That most of these places, you know, of course, this is all occurring over the Sinai Peninsula, over the Holy Land, Canaan, the the you know, all, and essentially Yemen being being involved kind of ties it all into one into one particular kind of mosaic and puzzle where you have the, the Muslim world completely fully involved now that they're shooting literally long-range missiles, as you mentioned, over, over the from the south side of the Red Sea, all across the Red Sea, all the way to Israel. Of course, none of these missiles have hit any key targets yet, these Houthi Shia missiles from Yemen. But what's interesting is the US is actually assisting Israel, of course, in intercepting these missiles by placing USS Carney with its air defense system in the middle of the Red Sea and catching any <laughs> Yemenis. I mean, mind you, these missiles are probably... Based on really old Soviet-style technology, shooting these Yemenis' long-range missiles towards Israel, and the U.S. is currently interrupting them. And of course, the uh, the famous Patriot U.S. defense air defense system in Saudi Arabia also catches one of those missiles out and shoots it down. So again, uh, the Saudis and the and in the Americans doing all they can in order to defend defend Israel's southern border from Yemenese missiles. Now, one of the more mysterious things, which frankly we thought could potentially escalate the conflict and bring in maybe more of an Egyptian, you know the Egyptians are very cool headed they seem to be really holding the border strong you know they understand their place in this um greater alliance between the United States and Israel and so on on the Egyptian border of Israel actually 200 kilometers from Gaza a drone crashed into a uh, into a building net adjacent to a hospital actually and the entire building was set on fire so it was a, quite a massive drone not sure if the drone was actually shot out of the sky or if uh if the drone if it was a suicide drone of some sort at least six people are pretty horrifically injured in that explosion and This happened in the town of Taba and another uh, town 40 kilometers away at Nueva, a drone was shot out of the sky by the Egyptian air force, which uh, the debris actually um, fell all all over the desert. So nobody got hurt. But we have these like this bizarre imagery of these uh, suicide drones flying over the Egyptian Red Sea desert, you know, towards the Sinai, southern side of the Sinai Peninsula. And no one's really being held accountable for this. Like, you know, are these these Saudi drones, are these Egyptian drones, Palestinians? I mean, Israel has only claimed that these drones are from the Yemenis and these drones are flying all the way from south. I mean, I'm not even sure if they have, like, I'm not even frankly sure if the GPS or internet connection allows for these drones to be controlled from that far away. We're talking hundreds of kilometers. Again, very mysterious drones flying all over Southern Egypt, attempting to provoke, you know, crashing into buildings and things like that. So quite chaotic and naturally very tense on that Southern Israeli Gazan border. And, you know, all the sides are pretty much heavily involved at this point. The the leader of the Houthis just want to mention that he's completely on bored with the whole let's ignore the fact that the Jordanian king um, from the Hashemite dynasty is the caretaker of the mosque because you know he's he's maybe an Arab but we're the Yemenis local Arabs we don't care about the Saudi kings we don't care about the kings of Jordan and we're actually the true care you know the potential future caretakers of the mosque as he says operation Al-Aqsa flood is a great and important operation that came within the framework of the legitimate right of the Palestinian people to confront the unjust and occupying enemy, says the Houthi leader, Abdul Malik al-Houthi. So he actually actually, openly stated that, look, the operation is called Al-Aqsa Flood. It's still about the Mos- Al-Aqsa Mosque after all. And it's simply about actually traveling from Gaza. That ex- that famous expedition, once Hamas and <laughs> once Hamas, and of course Yemen is somehow involved here to defeat the Israeli army, they will be moving towards the West Bank and liberating Jerusalem, which again, very entertaining scenario, but I'm not sh- quite sure where um, where the Yemenis get involved here. I mean, that's if you to scout the fact that in, in, in the olden days, I guess like over 80 years ago when Israel was formed in the 1940s, a large portion of actually Arabian Jews or so-called Yemenis Jews migrated from the Yemenis... Uh, end of the Arabian Peninsula into Israel. So it wasn't just Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews, but also these Jews who appear Arabian, and I guess they could speak Arabic, they could even they even looked Arabic. And today, a lot of people claim that Mossad agents within Gaza and amongst Palestinian ranks are actually these Yemenese Jewish immigrants who moved to Israel all those years ago. So that's a very interesting fact that it ties Yemen a little bit closer to Israel. Maybe it's these long well, maybe it's these long connections that tie these two particular regions together. But again, this is kind of a, a zone of speculation. Nevertheless, Yemen and Hezbollah, of course, as you mentioned, Iran, seem to be the strongest allies right now of the Palestinian people. And all the other countries seem to be hesitant, it, you know, given Saudi Arabia's comments, as you said. And of course, Iran and, and Turkey as well. Turkey, of course, standing on the more rhetorical end, as you mentioned, Erdogan, almost on a daily basis, escalating his rhetoric against Israel. Oh, yeah. and before- mm-hmm.
0: Before we get into Erdogan's comments, I just want to briefly comment. You mentioned about Yemen. The uh, it sounds like the Arabian Jews didn't get a good, didn't go out on good terms from you know the Houthis or the more Shia leaning people on the uh, on the on the west coast there. But it's a good point because some people, I mean, people speculate. I don't believe this necessarily. Some people straight up say that like the House of Saud, they're just actually Jews and stuff like that. that's why they you know that's why they love Israel so much and everything. But the fact that the Houthis you know have basically defeated the Saudi Yemen proxy. And are now launching their own missiles at Israel, you know, unattacked. You know, the Yemeni civil war is basically over. The US had to stop supporting it. So the Houthis, as far as that conflict goes, basically won. And now they're able to go super far with their rhetoric because Saudi Arabia has had to come out. Saudi Arabia condemns any Israeli ground operation that may threaten the lives of Palestinian civilians. That's from the Saudi foreign ministry. And you know the Saudi Arabians, like you said, they were just about to they were just about to recognize Israel, completely normalize relations, but they're a huge Islamist, traditional country. The people are not going to tolerate something like that in the midst of a massive genocidal operation being put against the Palestinians. So, at the end of the day, even the even the supposedly crypto-Jewish, you know, House of Saud, they're having to they're having to totally sound like Iran and Turkey. But quickly, wanted to read Biden's statement. Biden, you know, he talked about the the Iranian attacks, the attacks against Iranian-backed militias in. Iraq and Syria, Biden has delivered a war powers notification to Congress, notifying them of the recent airstrikes against Iranian-backed militias in eastern Syria on October 26, following over 15, in rock, 15 drone and rocket attacks by these militias on U.S. forces in Syria and Iraq, resulting in the death of an American tra- contractor as well as the injury of at least 30 service members. Also, the letter further states that the United States stands ready to take further action as necessary and appropriate to address further threats or attacks. And this comes right after Iran threatened to, and I quote, open up multiple new fronts. Against the United States, if they just continue to support Israel at all as Israel prepares for this ground invasion, which u uh, s marine Corps general Brooks he stated that the Israeli ground invasion is entirely an Israeli decision, so I don't know if that's the u s trying to wash its hands of the bloody consequences or if that's the u s trying to reassure you know Jews in America or whatever it is that no no. Israel's still in control, don't worry. We 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 don't we don't pretend to call the shots. That that's on you guys. So it, i guess it could be either way on that one. But yeah, you're right that between Iran, the Houthis, and Hezbollah, they're taking the most action. But you mentioned Turkey, and while Turkey hasn't like we've said before, Turkey there's still the Turkish proxies are still tying Assad down in the north, so We like when actions speak louder than words, as far as these things go, but it seems that Turkey, I mean, it may be for no other reason that Erdogan is having to come out so pro-Palestinian because the Turkish people have, I mean, they're burning McDonald's, there's just a general, I guess, pogrom against American businesses at this point in certain parts of Turkey. I can't imagine, you know, in the central parts of Turkey it's that great, especially where the earthquake was, So, so I can't imagine those people are pleased with the situation, but... At a huge rally, Erdogan said, Oh, Western powers, do you want a new war between the Crescent and you crusaders again? So know that this nation, the Turkish nation, is not dead. We are in the Middle East, what we are in Libya, what we are in Karabakh. So Erdogan is just really increasing the neo-Ottoman rhetoric in his mind. Azerbaijan is Turkey, parts of the northern African coast, or Turkey, I guess, part of the Ottoman Empire. And we've talked about how the last caliphate that ruled the Holy Land was the Ottoman Empire. So if Erdogan is really being this Islamist, irredentist, revanchist figure, even if he's allies with Israel, he would be foolish not to take advantage of his country's history in the region and and rally to this, this, just use this moment of support to rally support to him and to his party because, you know, like you said, he's not in the best health and when he falls, well, we know how the prophecies go about that.
1: Yeah, that's right. And perhaps, you know, uh, all things considered, perhaps the the most just outcome, or at least, you know, the Holy Land was ruled in, in the best possible fashion, not under the British Prote- Protectorate of Palestine, not under the Israelis, but perhaps under the Ottoman Empire, all things considered, you know, both Palestinians and G- Jewish immigrants and even Christian immigrants and pilgrims could live in relative peace, you know, even pre-World War One, especially. So, I mean, all things considered, maybe Erdogan actually has a point that the region should be united under some sort of a, a Turkish, Turkish unity, of course, this is speaking very hypothetically here, but yeah, Erdogan's powerful comments naturally towards Hamas, calling them a mujahideen you know he said they're not a terrorist organization it's a it is a group of mujahideen defending their lands the last time we heard this sort of rhetoric was of course from the united states praising what what would become the future taliban of the of the afghanistan mountains claiming they're, they are freedom fighters against the soviets during the 1970s and 80s and naturally look how that turned out with the biden administration having to pull out of afghanistan after a a 20, you can say a 20 year long trillion dollar wasted war against the freedom fighters that it helped actually create. So in fact, very hypocritical. And I mean, hypocrisy goes a long way in terms of US foreign policy these days. Now, naturally you mentioned US bases in Syria and Iraq Assad never consented to have, you know, American bases built on his sovereign territory. And in fact, U.S. bases are there now. They're essentially unmovable and attacking them would essentially incur World War III from the the Russians, from Assad, from any particular, I guess, uh, enemy of the United States. So hypocrisy is the real name of the game. And frankly, nobody at the top really cares at this point because it's, it's always rhetoric and PR that seems to move the needle forward. And Netanyahu, I think of most people, understands this, which is why I think, It's very uh, sort of apt to move on to this particular quotation of his. So Netanyahu, in one of his most recent speeches, actually begins quoting the Old Testament. In fact, Isaiah chapter 60 in particular, he gave a speech on Wednesday night at the end of October here about about his war with Hamas. And he says at the end of the speech, he quoted the prophet Isaiah where prophet Isaiah actually speaks about a coming kingdom with no violence and no lawlessness. And Netanyahu, of course, was making a pun because he knew that the Jewish, the Orthodox Jews were actually reading the Torah, Isaiah chapter 60, the previous week at the synagogues. And so he's like, okay, this is a relevant chapter because all the Jews in Israel would have actually read this particular chapter last week, similar to how we read the gospel in the Orthodox Christian church, you know, we read certain chapters in each given week. So do the Jews as well, interestingly enough, in the Old Testament. So, of course, uh, he essentially mentions uh, Isaiah chapter 60. So this is the quote. Uh, Netanyahu says, violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders. And you shall call your all salvation and, and your gates pray, a praise." And then he says, of course, this particular Isaiah sixty chapter, where he says there won't be any crime, and I mean, it's a complete misinterpretation. It's not not just a kiliastic and a futuristic one thousand year millennium type of interpretation, but it's also the the false Pharisaical Orthodox rabbinical Jewish uh, interpretation of this verse. Now, this verse naturally speaks about the future kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that will come, that we you know. Read about in the Orthodox a Lord's Prayer, but Netanyahu actually transplants that and says it's about modern Israel. So, modern Israel will have no crime, which, as we know, the kingdom of heaven is not of this earth. It's not, it's not, there'll never be a land without for example, without terrorist organizations acting in some way. It doesn't have to be Hamas. It could be any lands. And this is just to burst Netanyahu's bubble. There won't be a land without crime. There won't be a land without Hamas. There'll always be problems. If it won't be Hamas, it will be some, I don't know, uh, some Israeli mafia, for example. There'll always be lawlessness in, in the land here on earth, which is why we need a justice system. And how we Orthodox Christians actually view chapter 60, verse 18, in fact, as we juxtapose it with um, the New Testament. So the chapter 21 of the book of Revelations, which reads almost exactly the same, so we can see Apostle John, exactly what he had in mind, quoting Isaiah. He says, I do not see the temple in the city because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. No, no uh, On on no day will its gates ever be shut and there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So naturally, even if you're, say, a Protestant or an Orthodox Jew and you're reading the Book of Revelations, you won't be saying that, oh, okay, wow, this is speaking about a, you know, a state here on earth. No, this is about the kingdom of heaven. Orthodox Christians understand this. And in particular, like when we do read the Old Testament, right, Conrad? We, we don't, unlike Netanyahu, we don't exactly speak always about something that's happening here on earth. We look at the interpretation of the saints, we don't interpret it in our own words. And uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria and St. Jerome actually interpret this to mean the kingdom of heaven. chapter 60. But naturally, Netanyahu wouldn't know this. And in fact, he believes that chapter 60 of Isaiah was either a pun or a joke about the future state of Israel being free of Hamas and free of terrorist organizations, which is just bizarre. And I mean, if anything, it's it's a little bit sacrilegious, him quoting scripture like that, considering that he himself is not really an Orthodox Jew either. So I think it's even a bit offensive to the Orthodox Hasidic and the other communities in his uh, country.
0: Well, we call Isaiah the fifth gospel in the Orthodox community. So I think Jews citing it it at all, I I find that offensive. You know, we're flipping the tables on them, right? But the, uh, yeah, I mean, Erdogan and Netanyahu sound very similar in their Jewish and Muslim Ottoman visions for their respective countries, frankly. I mean... Netanyahu wants a greater Israel. Erdogan wants, you know, a greater Turkey. He, you know, threatens Greece much in similar ways, frankly, that Netanyahu often threatens the Palestinians. Despite all of that, though, the Greek government goes against the will of its people and supports Israel anyway. Of course, we know Mitsotakis is just a neoliberal shill controlled by his bankster masters in in Brussels, but unfortunately for Netanyahu, even Hamas leadership outside of, you know, in Qatar and outside abroad of the Gaza Strip are reporting that that initial incursion was a failed attempt at an Israeli ground invasion. They've lost, you know, six tanks, supposedly 100 tanks mobilized at once. And it seems that, you know, they, uh, it seems that they may have realized that that wasn't the way to go. And again, it's so similar to the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which was literally going on for like a month and a half before they actually announced that the offensive had even started. Those of you may remember. So, it's really, it's really the the similarities are, are stunning, and we're going to get into some Ukrainian rabbis' comments later in the show, so stay tuned. But while it does seem that everybody in the region has completely united against Israel, the one country that we do speak about a lot in regards to multipolarity that seems to be getting closer to Israel is India. And we just talked about Hamas leadership in Qatar. Right now, Qatar again known as an american non-nato ally on the state department website biden made this declaration less than a year ago and now qatar on top of you know being where the hamas leadership actually lives they don't live in gaza and the west bank they would obviously get taken out but qatar shelters them allows them to live there fly to different countries for diplomatic missions and whatnot they also of course fund al jazeera the biggest international you know, Arabic anti-Zionist news outlet that exists. I mean, Al Jazeera is huge. And now Qatar has arrested eight Indian ex-Navy personnel. People, these are Indian officers that for some reason Qatar had, you know, piloting some of their main ships of their Navy, the Navy that is very powerful in the Persian Gulf. And Qatar has now sentenced eight of these Indians to death. And the Indian government is working really hard behind the scenes to try to get this not to happen. But as far as I can tell, if I had to make assumptions, Dimitri, it seems that these Indians were spying for Israel and sending them information, and the Qatar government caught on, and now India is freaking out because just from their population, their population is already very strongly supporting Israel. And, of course, this has, in my opinion, the border skirmishes between that we've seen in Kashmir that have just erupted between, I think only one person has died between India and Pakistan, that's erupting because of the Israel-Palestine conflict, because the reason India sides so strongly with Israel is because they view themselves you know, as kind of kindred spirits against Islam, because they have their war against Pakistan. So this is a really interesting situation. I'm wondering how it will affect multipolarity, if it will push India further into the Western camp, and if it seems and it seems that Qatar is doing a bit of an about face.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, on one hand, it does seem very morbid and kind of like, you know, very a uh, little bit sp- strong of qatar is simply announcing that these people are spies and their legal system has determined so you know w- without without a present of a presence of a doubt so it's beyond reasonable doubt these indians these indian nationals are spies and they're spying on qatar essentially and of course the pro the the, you know we're not really against the, the the death penalty but it is a little bit interesting of how islamic countries do carry out you know executions like we know all about that from the uh, ichgerian republic and all the mess that went on there and uh adjacent orthodox countries or even under sharia law during the ottoman empire so we're not exactly for islamic death penalty per se but again is there a chance that these uh you know Indian servicemen were were they members of like some sort of Indian intelligence which were co- cooperating with Masad in order to display in Qatar very possible especially considering that there are over 700,000 Indian nationals who are actually residing in Qatar on work visas and the Indian uh, I mean the Indian presence on the Arabian Peninsula in itself is very, very active. People go there for work, mostly just to escape, I guess, the Indian rat race and to order to progress their careers. So again, we can't really comment on whether or not it's correct. But India, I believe, will probably never admit that these people are actually spies of their own or even cooperating with Mossad. I think that I think India is willing to maybe sacrifice these people for the greater good for the future of whatever relations it, it may have with Israel or whichever other agency they've been working with, frankly. Um, and naturally, this does give Qatar some somewhat of a bad like and a bad bad rap, especially considering that now Qatar is being somewhat like the spotlight is on Qatar in terms of Qatar being this the home of Al Jazeera, the home of Hamas, and before I guess people who just regularly watch the news what they associate Qatar with is of course the the FIFA World Cup or they associate with the Formula 1 Qatar Grand Prix they do not necessarily associate Qatar with being the home base of Hamas and ter- you know various so-called islamic terrorist organizations right it's it's you know if anything it's considered one of these very civilized pro western countries and suddenly we're seeing uh, capital punishment we're seeing all kinds of bizarre things so again um Qatar really not afraid to show their teeth here and show their sort of real Islamic nature, which, you know, we do have to report on, namely. uh, Very interesting, though. But in terms of the IMEC developments between India, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Jordan, Israel, we spoke about that last year, and the European Union, Qatar isn't part of this mix. So I do wonder if that whole project, you know, which Definitely, it won't be transpiring anytime soon with, with Chinese warships and all kinds of action happening in the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea. But the project of the underwater railway between Mumbai, Dubai, under the Persian Gulf, will that actually transpire? Given you know Q- Qatar's involvement here, the Qatar Navy, um, and everything kind of combined here, the UAE is not is not necessarily Qatar. They're not the same state. But of course, they are close allies, and they're essentially neighbors. So I'm not quite sure where um, Arabian-Indian relations will go after this. I think we'll just have to keep our eyes peeled. But definitely, this could place certain things on tension. I mean, Israel
0: could have put India in a big bind here. I mean, India may not have known that these guys were working for Mossad. They could have been recruited as workers while they were in the Middle East by Israeli intelligence. But between India wanting to look out for its nationals, they can't have the entire Indian population of these Arabian countries like considered a fifth column considered potential Israeli spies and they've also just thrown in so much of their lot with Israel especially now against Pakistan that they can't condemn Israel for recruiting their people so Israel i mean so India may be in a bit of a a bit of a bind that Israel put them in on this regarding their their foreign policy outlook and yeah you said 700,000 in Qatar the UAE Saudi Arabia Kuwait Bahrain there's so many Indians Southeast Asians and all of these countries just, just working a lot of times they outnumber the the native Arabic population and in many cases you know they'll be by far the biggest population but have no voting rights or any kind of enfranchisement like that so it's a very kind of citizenship is a much bigger deal in these countries than it is like in America, where if you cross a border and happen to stay here for a few months, I guess you can become a citizen. So very different outlook on how they treat different countries and and foreigners. But unless you have anything else to say about all of that, I like how you mentioned the the Chinese ships in the Persian Gulf. China sent six warships into the Persian Gulf for exercises and just to, I think, keep tabs on the region. Of course, I think they have some things in Kuwait and just kind of patrolling the sea off the coast of Iran because they have very close... Naval and military kind of relations recently now with Iran and China, which seems to be usurping the previous Chisreel connection, where Israel and China would collaborate to steal American intelligence. It seems that China is getting more from the Iranian alliance. But speaking of you know the Persian Gulf and everything, Dimitri, you mentioned how. If you hear about news of things like that in the Persian Gulf and things getting closed, which, again, Iran and Qatar and these other states have threatened to close the Persian Gulf entirely, completely kind of shut the Western world and Israeli allies off from the energy supply that flows through there, I mean, that's uh, that's big news. We said that if you start hearing about that, go fill up your gas tank. And of course, this is the kind of thing where, I mean, Metropolitan Neofitos and Many saints, I mean, Elder Theodore, they talked about, are you worried about Israel and Iran yet? Of course, they're also talking about a possible preemptive strike on Iran's nuclear capabilities. But as far as the gas energy situation goes, Metropolitan Leovitos predicted that as well. He says that retaining a donkey will help you in the future when World War III goes really hot because the fuel crises will be so brutal that... People won't be able to drive, but it seems that the powers that be are aware of this as well because South America, frankly, is opening up as more of a front now in World War III in the midst of all of this. It appears that uh, multiple big U.S. gas firms have been sold and given grants and permissions to explore and extract hydrocarbons off the coast of Guyana, and Guyana is right next door to Venezuela, and Mm -hmm. Venezuela is the number one geopolitical ally of the BRICS and the multipolar bloc in the world. In South America, Nicolas Maduro, the the holdout of the Chavist kind of regimes of South America, the socialist, communist allies of, you know, the Soviet Union, Cuba, China, very much enemies of the United States. He's been dealing with a diaspora, you know, elected fake representative government of Venezuela abroad. You probably remember when Juan Guaido was welcomed to Congress to a standing ovation. But the reason this is a big deal, these Guyanese contracts that are supposedly being given out to these big multi-billion dollar American and British and just Western energy firms. Those are all off the coast of the Guyana Esequiba, or the Essequibo, as the region is called, which is a region of more than half of Guyana, which is actually territorially claimed by Venezuela. And of course, the waters off the coast are also claimed by Venezuela. And I think a lot of these things are even very close to actual Venezuela proper's coast as well. So there's some there's some disputes there. But the Venezuelan authorities have made some pretty strong statements. I'm going to pull those up. But Dimitri, it seems that the energy wars are really coming to World War 3. And we've said this before how, you know, besides, you know, providence, the power of God, the prophetic civilizational element, energy is very much secondary or tertiary to to these things when it comes to World
1: War. Yeah, that's right. It's almost like the the black oil idol, you know, always emerges and it always requires veneration and worship, you know, as it was in the Middle East and so in South America. It seems like the 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 United States is very interested in its backyard now that the Middle East suddenly becomes a place of hot contention. And possibly, if everything goes, you know, absolutely uh, upside down, and you know, nuclear, you know, tactical nuclear bombs are used, Israel, you know, initiates some sort of a plan you could say almost a plan c and kind of defends itself against its uh against its islamic opponents you may see the middle east it's essentially unaccessible for oil extraction for many decades going forward so of course the united states needs to secure itself first and foremost and the state department naturally greenlit this whole guyana ExxonMobil mobil hess Extraction, you know, operation ongoing on the borders of Venezuela. Venezuela is, of course, no friend being a socialistic Marxist country under Maduro and, of course, the previous uh, President Hugo Chavez of the United States. So, again, this is almost like two birds of one stone. The U.S. manages to get its petrol major, multi, you know, multinational petrol companies essentially into this particular area. And on the other hand, it gets to uh, essentially make its mark on this uh, seemingly Venezuelan territory. Naturally, that uh, Essequibo River territory. As it flows into the sea and all of that particular, all those particular oil zones, they're not necessarily very, very densely populated, especially the rainforest there. There's always looking at the population, Guyana's population is over 800,000 and only about 100,000 of its people live in those areas which are now being looked at in order for, you know, for exploitation by these American companies. So if a war, if a local conflict does break out, not many Guyanese will actually be negatively impacted, which probably just increases the possibility of the U.S. actually going hard here. And naturally, Guyana in, its, in and of itself, this territory has been disputed over in international courts so, um, since uh, 1899, so since essentially pre-World War One, since the imperial colonial days. Guyana has won two lawsuits against, Venez- against Venezuela in, in the international court of law. So, in fact, actually securing these territories, or at least some sort of uh, some sort of recognition that it, that these territories does do belong to it, but naturally, I don't think Venezuela is going to back down. I think from the recent reports, it sent over two hundred Venezuelan soldiers to the borders of Venezuela and Guyana, and the citation oh. here. The citation, funny enough, is Venezuela saying, "Oh, we've uh, spotted some illegal miners in the in the local mines just across the border, so we're just checking it out." In, but in fact, it's a pretty strong statement for these small countries. Two hundred, you know, trained uh, elite troops is quite a big. Uh, quite a big move, of course, sending them to these rainforests and these mountainous regions uh, is a very powerful statement by Venezuela. It, you know, despite these numbers seemingly rather small, but we saw what even Hamas could do with very small contingent force exiting the, you know, Gaza into Israeli military bases. So again, numbers should never be really underestimated. Venezuela, you know, making a strong statement, which, frankly, I, I don't really mind. Giving that Guyana does seem like a bit of a puppet back backyard state of the United uh, of the United States here.
0: Well, you know, Venezuela there north of Brazil, which now is Lula-dominated, which is a BRICS ally, although Lula, he's waffling a bit on Israel. He's pro-Palestinian, but it's interesting how that's breaking down. But Venezuela on their uh, western side on where they border Colombia they have Colombian right wing militias always pushing into there against the against the communists so they've got border territory disputes on both sides that's what happens when you i guess go up against the US in that regard not that I'm necessarily pro chavist at all I would of all of the multipolar forms of government chavism is definitely uh the worst as opposed to you know the current Russian form of government or you know Chinese national socialism or whatever it is you know is going on but Yeah, some of these statements from Venezuela, very strong. Chancellor of the Bolivarian Republic, that's that's Venezuela, Ivan Gil, he said, Venezuela informs the international community and the transnational energy companies that have received illicitly from the government of Guyana authorizations to explore and exploit hydrocarbons in a large, undelimited maritime space, that such actions are absolutely null and contrary to the public international law and the principles enshrined in the constitution of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. And then uh, the minister of the People's Power for Defense, which is the equivalent of the defense minister of Venezuela, Vladimir Padrino López, in a direct threat to Guyana, he said the government of the Cooperative Republic of Guyana must know that these actions will have a forceful and proportional response from Venezuela. In the maritime spaces of our Atlantic facade, they have already witnessed the determination in defense of what is ours. So I think he's talking about how their navy has made it clear that I think they've asserted themselves into those waters before because Guyana, not a powerful military force, I think if it was just... No, you know, no supporters involved, not a proxy war, just Venezuela versus Guyana. Venezuela could just take over the entire country. I think that's, that's undisputed. But of course, Guyana backed up by the US, they border on their east, Suriname and French Guyana. French Guyana, which, you know, not far away is literally just part of metropolitan France. It's not even a country. It's not even a territory. It is literally part of the European Union. If you enter French Guyana from Suriname or Brazil, you're supposedly in Europe, according to the law. So, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of proxy situations going on there. But it's fascinating because we've talked, I mean, we know about the Cuban Missile Crisis. We know how in the past South America and the Caribbean was a really hot front for the Cold War. And now between Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba, Colombia, actually, like we just talked about how they're, they have disputes with Venezuela, they expelled the Israeli ambassador. They went all out, completely have disavowed Israel, completely siding with the Palestinians. I think they elected a more left-wing government. And... Yeah, it's very, very interesting things going on in South America. But I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, let's say the U.S. feels the need, if they really, if the energy situation behind the scenes is really so bad, I wouldn't be surprised if they sent some some contractors to help Guyana and to really repel Venezuela for making any moves.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it would, in fact, mirror what the Russian Federation has been doing by sending Wagner forces in order to push, uh, say, Niger, Mali, Burkina Faso to some sort of, uh, you know, and even uh, Central African Republic to places of prominence in order to keep certain regimes in place. Now, again, uh, could uh, could American mercenaries or even, uh, say, if we're speaking about NATO here in general, could uh, British mercenaries actually hold up Gu- Gu- Guyanese power in the region? I think absolutely. And naturally, the anti-Israeli sentiment, I do, need to, I do need to comment that most of these countries, whether or not it's Marxist, atheistic, like even Fidel Castro you have to mention that he had some very interesting relations with Pope Francis, that these countries are very heavily Catholic, and the Catholics don't necessarily have the most pro, shall we say, pro-Zionist, pro-Semitic pro positions. Not always, but naturally, I think that's something to consider, especially South Americans who say it, it is one of the strongholds of, you know, you can say Roman Catholicism besides Poland and some of those traditional states in Europe. So in, in many ways, we could see like the last glimpses of You could say based traditional Catholicism, where you know essentially where Pope Francis came from originally, but him not being a very good representative of it, emerging in South America with this thing, what's happening with the U.S. with its ties to Israel, with this particular powerful lobby working in these countries, and they're just having none of it. And in fact, they're they're not supportive of the killing of Palestinians. And yeah, this could be reflective in their foreign policy, very very likely. Now, of course, this could all interact very easily and seamlessly with the energy wars that are currently taking place, because all these countries, they do understand as former colonies of either Spain, Portugal, uh, Great Britain, France, they do understand that in order to secure themselves a place as sovereign nation states in the future, they do need independent um, origin points of energy whether it be gas crude oil they do need to sell something to the international community they're seeing russia actually obtain you know they're, they're watching Russian sovereignty develop over the last 30 years and Russia in a large part it hasn't done so due to its manufacturing or its industry or even I mean even its military industrial complex uh, hasn't been uh, hasn't been the of the highest level of course the United States had a much more powerful industrial complex in that state but russia has developed very lar- in a large part. And these South American countries have seen this in due to selling actual fossil fuels internationally. So all these countries are kind of following in that model. And again, it's a it's a bit of a Brixian type scenario for them. And many of them are, of course, aspiring BRICS countries. So and not just Brazil. And I think that's kind of moving forward. That'll be the image here. So it'll be like traditional Catholicism, maybe a certain flavors of Marxism and a very heavy emphasis on energy. What kind of places with energy origin you control gas oil maybe even local minerals and everybody's essentially fighting for their own state in order to for them to have you know sovereignty and independence especially given that the american you can say the american uh, global hegemony is breaking down right before our eyes and it seems like the globalists are moving to a more decentralized model of state control yeah the The situation down there
0: can really go either way. I could really see Trump winning in 2024 and then him pivoting away from the Middle East and Ukraine, but kind of this reassertion of the Monroe Doctrine, that would be a way to possibly bring even America First-type people into a more hawkish foreign policy because they perceive actions in Mexico or South America as having impacts on the border, having impacts on American drug issues, having impact on, you know, actually reasserting our original intent, you know, the Monroe Doctrine. That's an actual ancient you know 18th century sort of idea about how American foreign policy should actually be and unfortunately world war 3 is truly truly global at this point so that that policy could still work in regards to you know serving global capital unfortunately but regarding this energy stuff it's very similar actually to the situation in the eastern mediterranean between turkey egypt cyprus and greece we know that turkey has been pushing around trying to extend its economic zones using its Proxy in Northern Cyprus to try to get access to oil fields and shale yards in the Eastern Mediterranean that should be claimed by Egypt, by Cyprus, and these other groups. And ironically enough, at that big rally where he, you know, threatened war with the Western world, Erdogan made one of his favorite comments. You know, we might come unexpectedly one night, and he always says that when he's talking about Greek islands or coming, you know, all these sorts of things. So he's he's bringing that in now to talk to Israel. So he's got he's got his way that he likes to talk about these things, but you know the energy wars i mean it seems that we're still ambiguous right now on the turkey russia gas hub turkey itself has suspended all energy deals with israel which is a pretty big deal i haven't seen the same from azerbaijan i think azerbaijan is on a bit of a tighter leash than all of this so we may have to do some bit bit of a dive on how turkey and azerbaijan are interacting amidst all this i imagine aliyev he's happy on his karabakh victory but is feeling pretty nervous that his best friends in tel aviv are, are in some hot water but Before we move on to Ukraine, we have to talk about this Estonia-Finland pipeline news, which is kind of getting swept under the rug. I'm not seeing that many people talk about it. And the fact that two NATO countries, Finland now fully into NATO, Sweden waiting to get in, Estonia obviously longtime member of NATO at this point. It appears that Estonia and Finland are blaming China, a Chinese container vessel, for dragging an anchor and severing a Baltic sea gas pipeline. And it's not being talked about very much, but U.S. Senator Eric Schmidt, he's from Missouri, only recently elected, he said reports indicate a Chinese shipping vessel dragged anchor, potentially for miles, causing severe damage to Baltic sea gas pipelines. While the investigation by authorities is still ongoing, it's hard to believe this wasn't an act of sabotage by China. So China is very much being implicated in... I I don't see the media trying to turn this into a big Nord Stream thing yet, although... They may have realized the Nord Stream thing backfired. As I think most people in the world know it was just the United States because of everyone's favorite "Thank You USA" tweet from a certain Pollock. But at the end of the day, it was the Balt Connector pipeline as well as subsea cables that connect telecoms between the two countries. And that's you know a lot of stuff goes over the North Sea and everything. So this is this is a big deal. And again, Turkey submitted. Sweden's accession into NATO, Erdogan sent that to the Turkish parliament, so that's probably going to be happening. And this could be, you know, once maybe some of this Israel stuff dies down or it gets dealt with or maybe heats up, to get China involved, the U.S. may, involve, may invoke this because that's, a, you know, that's an attack supposedly on two, two NATO countries, which, you know, it's, very, uh, it's a very interesting development. I wonder if China will be forced to respond.
1: Yeah, I think the ch- Chinese presence in, in the Baltic, of course, is su- surprising for many people, especially given the ship that actually, that actually was allegedly responsible, um, you know, flew a Hong Kong flag as well, which, you know, brings about many questions as to, you know, uh, what is Hong Kong essentially a, f- a full part of China now, or is it only under its uh, under its authority? Of course, this debate, of course, was raging prior to COVID. Now it's kind of died down slightly, but nevertheless, China is is the, is to blame here. And just like the Nord Stream pipeline was blamed on the Russians, <laughs> which was completely nonsensical, given that the Russians invested literally billions of American dollars into constructing it. Um, and this, of course, kind of flies in the flies in the face of everything. And the hypocritical Scandinavian nations themselves, of course, announced that. They will be investigating this. There will be a joint effort between the Estonian Prosecutor General's Office and the Finnish National Bureau of Investigation. So essentially the the Finnish FBI will be investigating this particular error that occurred on on the bottom of the Baltic Sea. Very, very bizarre. Some very strange occurrences naturally in the Baltic, now, whether or not this will escalate things or even bring about um, anti Chinese rhetoric, of course anti Chinese rhetoric is always welcome. This was common during the trump administration, but of course now the now that the uh, direction has shifted towards Ukraine and anti russia you know relations with China, remember early on during the Biden administration, Conrad, they kept talking about how Biden did the pro Chinese pivot. Um, although I don't think we're actually seeing this uh, kind of come to fruition as powerfully as maybe the Chinese would like they did get Anthony blinken the the famous uh, judeo American to actually travel to to China and proclaim earlier this year that Taiwan was always is always a part of China and the us never recognizes Taiwan as a state you know despite all the um, micro processes and actually the us having troops in Taiwan so again very a lot of hypocrisy being said here a lot of uh, essentially false political statements in order to redirect attention of the i guess the public away from the fact that there, are, there is a looming China, a sino-american conflict on the horizon i think and essentially the chinese as you mentioned their potential invasion of taiwan following what's happening in ukraine could be uh, could lead to some devastating results for the american influence in that region speaking of of course ukraine Naturally, the wars continue. We have some pretty major news, especially from, well, I suppose, beginning in uh, Avdyevka, which is naturally still being besieged by the Russian forces. There is a complete surround ongoing, like what you'd call a, a military cauldron. The Russian forces are attempting to surround the town of Avdyevka, north of Donetsk, as we spoke about last week. The progress, of course, is halted on. Um, as you would expect, a coal a coal gas plant, so a factory which produces coal gas, or uh, as as it would be known, a, a coke plant. So this chemical chemical industrial plant goes back to the Soviet years. I believe it was built in the 1960s or 70s. So it's very robust, similar to the this st- steel factory in Mariupol. And the Russians, in order to actually surround Avdiivka and to capture this northern town of Donetsk, they do need to actually push through this factory and completely subdue it. And this may, of course, involve very heavy shelling, similar to what we saw in Bakhmut. And some of the photographs coming out of Avdiivka, unfortunately, very Bakhmutian, very uh, Mariupolian, as in lots of destructions, uh, civilian departments. These Soviet departments really can't withstand consistent shelling, and things are falling apart. It's looking quite ugly, especially given the weather and the rains. In Russia now, the summer's coming to a close and we are in that sort of autumn period before it really starts to snow significantly, although Moscow and mainland Russia has seen snow already fall in its European regions. uh, Again, the weather is not looking too good. So the Russians are pushing into this particular plant. And uh, essentially looking to secure Odeyevka from all angles. When, once they surround it, naturally the best the best outcome for the Ukrainians is to surrender because again there won't be any connection to the mainland Ukrainian force and all the defenses which they've been planting. You know, for I think between five to nine years in this particular town, they won't be able to withstand the 360 degree Russian onslaught from all angles. That's essentially how siege warfare, I suppose, works. Which Bakhmut wasn't very typical with the Russians smashing into it head first. but this is there this seems to be a bit different. Russians are very intent on actually getting to full surround. So Avdiivka is looking looking good, but the progress again is very difficult. Russian tanks are being lost. Zelensky announcing that close to 2,000 Russian troops have already died in the last two weeks, which is an enormous amount. You know, given the you know if we if we're judging by numbers and the, and the conflict on the ground, really probably not even 2,000 Ukrainian troops have actually died in the last fortnight. So the fighting's not not as intense as you as you'd imagine but some very interesting developments as well on the kerson front the ukraine the ukrainian forces have actually began actually digging trenches on the russian side of the dnieper so in the kerson oblast ukrainians have managed to secure a foothold and uh, trying to cross in multiple places across the Dnieper has, had they have in fact succeeded. And this is closer to up north to the Zaporozhye Oblast, so up the Dnieper River, not in the Kherson city itself, but further up north. The Ukrainians have begun kind of uh, entrenching themselves. Again, whether whether or not they'll be able to bring around technology and tanks over the Dnieper River and secure like a proper foothold which from which they can actually... From where they can push into the Kyrgyzstan Oblast of Russia and actually pose a significant threat, threat similar to Zaporozhye. We're not quite sure, but uh, the Russians are watching this particular position very carefully. Zaporozhye seems to be incredibly quiet at the moment. Ukraine, of course, after losing close to 600 tanks in the last three months, has essentially, as you mentioned, Conrad, stopped its uh, counteroffensive. So the counteroffensive has come to an essential halt. And now it's the Russians' turn to actually make certain moves and Donetsk and Objev can maybe uh, take back some really old Donetsk and Donbass territories back to, back under Russian control.
0: Yeah, we're watching Avdivka very closely. I think Russia really wants to secure that before they make whatever big move I think they're going to make within the next month. While Ukraine, I think they're actually really trying to secure some some heights south of Bakhmut, which the Russians are really trying to prevent them from taking. And I think the Ukrainians think that they can take that a little bit, then they'll be able to hold on. But we've mentioned before, we've talked about the possibility of Ukrainian surrenders. I think we've talked about it a lot. It's always been hyped up and never really happened at the beginning of the SMO. But once this line that, you know, the Ukrainian offensive, sure, they weren't able to take territory, but perhaps some of them are taking pride in the fact that they've been able to keep the Russian onslaught and the Russian territorial gains into territories where, for better or for worse, those people were already or Russians anyway, right, from the perspective of the average Ukrainian nationalist that might go on public access television. But they might feel confident that in that. But once that territory really starts to get chipped away and, say, four or five, six new oblasts get taken, I can't imagine that the morale will, will stand up at all. And the question becomes, what methods will Russia use on those and that, in that push, I think Russia has shown that they're still very averse to civilian casualties. People are not, especially with people's stomachs are not, I think, ready for that kind of thing after all of the destruction in in Gaza. I think Russia, in fact, is benefiting from kind of the dichotomy, seeing how cruel the Israelis are being versus how for well over a year and a half now, the Russians have, you know, frankly treated their enemy in Ukraine with a velvet glove, considering that there's been an eight-year, you know, ethnic cleansing war going on in that region. But I think it's important to recognize that Russia has insanely capable weapons that it could be using at any moment in Ukraine and is choosing not to. We talked last week about the Kinjal missiles attached to Russian MiGs in the South Black Sea that could are in range could hit Russia, and could hit Russia. Uh, American carriers. Those Chinese ships that we talked about in the Persian Gulf earlier, those are supposedly equipped with hypersonics. And the Chinese Navy entirely has never been tested. China went from being a destitute third world poor country now to being the number one military power possibly in the world in the next 50 years. And they have these ships that are now in the Persian Gulf equipped with hypersonic missiles that have never been used in actual person-to-person combat. This is fully new generation of warfare that we're witnessing here. And the fact that Ukraine and now Gaza are waging right now is very, you know, we're, we're in a scary place, everybody. And, you know, Douglas McGregor is talking all about this. He's worried about Turkey. McGregor thinks that if Israel moves on Gaza, that from Indonesia to Morocco, from Gaza to Malaysia, there will be an Islamic front united. And he actually is convinced that Turkey may make a move into Gaza, into Israel from the sea, or something like that. And this is just getting so deep into the region and into the possibilities of these prophecies we've spoken about, about this about this region between Russia and Turkey and the Holy Land and the destruction of Al-Aqsa Mosque. It really it really starts to become crazy. And of course we have Netanyahu himself mentioning the book of Isaiah while at the same time. You know, basically all of, the, all of the rabbis of Ukraine and all of the rabbis of Russia are really, they're really making a point to, you know, certain people that were pro-Russia at the beginning of the SMO, certain people that were pro-Ukraine, they're making it very clear that somehow Russia is at fault for the issues in the Middle East and the Holy Land. Ukraine's top rabbi, Moshi Reuven Azman, he claims Putin and Hamas are one enemy who need to be defeated. This is, he actually just got back from Israel when he was saying this. Osman, he, in the video, he runs out of breath and says, Russia had the idea to use Israel-Hamas war to turn attention away from the Ukraine conflict. And sure, you look at the situation with Mike Johnson in the house. Initially, it was all about Israel, not so much about Ukraine. But the Ukraine aid seems to still be going on. So we'll see how long that can that can keep up. But Russian rabbis and others had things to say as well. So it's them boys are making it known.
1: That's right. And naturally, Rabbi Osman, being a very anti Anti-Russian rabbi, as you can imagine, unlike, you know, uh, Lazar or Alexander Boroda, he does have very strong opinions, pro Zelensky, and he does, in in many ways, he could have even been like a foreign minister of Ukraine, actually traveling to Israel, representing his home country of, you know, uh, former Kazaria or whatever you want to call it. Naturally, uh, his position, Hamas equals Russia, and Russia equals Hamas is very nonsensical given that, you know, the Israeli actually foreign minister makes the same analogy, but he calls Hamas ISIS. So now, of course, Russia equals ISIS equals Hamas, it's all one essentially similar to that coney campaign in 2012 where they said hitler Kony, osama bin laden they all one person so it's very the same sort of uh, pr strategies are being used but you know essentially you just compare evil 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 or you know perceived evil and and so it all makes sense in the eyes of the the general public as w- what you would show them on tv um very funny speaking of television of course the very famous russian uh jewish zionist actually yevgeny satanovsky um a, you know former Israeli citizen, actually, he was spent some time in Israeli prison for his very hardcore Zionism, was a very, I guess, he became a very popular journalist in Russia on television. And he was recently fired from the Vladimir Solovyov TV show, which is a very famous debate TV show. And he was a constant guest. And, you know, you just look at the name Yevgeny Satanovsky, right? Satanovsky, very curious character. But um, he would constantly appear on this TV show. And um, his origins are from Western Ukraine, so very interesting. Again, he's from that Uman type of region, um, so like a classical Judeo-Russian origin. But nevertheless, so his particular comments against Maria Zaharova, of all people, the Russian Ministry of Internal Affairs spokesperson, that blonde lady that keeps appearing on Russian television and even international television, speaking. So when Loverov isn't speaking, it usually it's her, and he ends up calling her a very drunk whore. And then he says, look, she does not love Jews, and she especially cannot stand Israel. He said this on live Russian TV in front of millions of people. Mm -hmm. And he was fired straight away, almost essentially. And he just, I'm not sure if he'll probably have a few lawsuits, a few defamation suits against them opened up in Russia. So he may ever actually need to. Probably run back to Israel. So Satanovsky was fired from the biggest Russian television journalist show. Very curious uh, that the Russians are not—they're not going to tolerate any of this Israeli Zionist disrespect towards their own citizens and their own, you know, spokespersons like Maria Zaharava Who, you know, she's a controversial figure to begin with. Like she's a very a very outspoken lady herself, right? Remember she called Vucic uh, uh, a prostitute as well back in the day in one of her press conferences. Um, which it, it's all—it's—it's it's all very funny how the Ministry of Internal Affairs. Uh, international affairs works here. Uh, Another funny character, of course, was the Kabbalistic Eurasian scholar Avigdor Eskin, who a former colleague of (laughs) Alec... Former colleague of Alexander Dugin, funny enough, he used to work with Alexander Dugin and some of the other, you know, there was kind of an interreligious alliance there speaking about Eurasia and very political philosophical group that they had. And he was part of that circle from the Kabbalistic Jewish angle. And he was recently, uh, he recently stated that he'll be leaving Russia to go to Israel. And he said, all Jews living in Russia at the moment need to leave Russia and travel to Israel. The great exodus has begun. Why he said this, it's not entirely known. Given that, you know, he's mostly a scholar and a journalist, it's not particularly clear as to why exactly Russian should suddenly start, I mean, Russian Jews should suddenly start running away. Because, I mean, Russia is relatively safe despite the few, you know, terrorist acts ongoing here and there. But nevertheless, that's the position of the Israeli, uh, you can say Israeli-Russian, Israeli-Russian dual citizens. They're very conflicted about this entire thing.
0: Avador Eskin is a fascinating character. We did our recent episode. Be sure to check out our most recent episode in Ether Hour about Pobodonatstiv, monarchism, czarism, autarky, really great stuff. But our Ether Hour before that, we talk about the anti-czarist connection with these ultra-Zionist militias in the early days of the foundation of the state of Israel. And... Avador Eskin, he himself was the person to translate Mayor Kahan's Never Again into Russian for the first time. And those that don't know Kahan, you know, the founder of Kahanism, like the ultimate Jewish ultra-nationalist revanchist group. He founded the JDL, the Jewish Defense League, which is a terrorist organization, you know, that has killed people. They put out a hit piece on David Cole, who was an American Jewish Holocaust revisionist. They tried to kill him, forced him to recant, even though he didn't actually recant his beliefs. They forced him, uh, basically, at the threat of a gun. And, yeah, Eskin, he called all Jews to leave Russia. This really gets me thinking about New Heavenly Jerusalem. I mean, if he's, you know, he's he was pro-SMO, and now he's calling for an exit to Israel. He's obviously pro-ground invasion of Gaza. Like, ground invasion of Gaza happens, Iran reacts, Jews have to flee Israel, Russia has pushed really far in the SMO, New Heavenly Jerusalem, question mark. Be sure to, all of our ether hours are really becoming relevant. I didn't think it would be as relevant as it was when we recorded it, frankly, but, Yeah, all of these characters are really coming to the fore, and I think it makes sense that more and more of these Jewish characters are going to come out against Russia as Russia reasserts itself civilizationally, you know, as characters like Gabriel de become more and more relevant, as people like Pobodon who I think our episode on him is really great, linked below, as people like him and his thought become more and more relevant in Russia, and Russia begins to look a little bit bit more like its pre-revolutionary self, I think we can only expect more and more things like this to happen.
1: Yeah, I think I suppose uh, there's probably, uh, we just have to mention it this week, there have been two more very powerful rabbinical stories. Not that we like to give these rabbinical narratives, but just seeing how these people act in terms of like, you know, it kind of gives you a perspective of where exactly this group is looking. So frankly, uh, the so-called Prince of the Torah, 94-year-old Haredi Judaism rabbi actually claimed quite openly Chaim Kanievsky, Rabbi Chaim Kanevsky claimed that Netanyahu is the last prime minister before the coming of the Moshiach. So again, there's always this, you know, there's the um, Moshiach. Uh, I think it was who was it, Shlomo, or what was his name? There was, anyways. There's always a Messiah on the yeah, horizon. Rabbi Schneerson. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right, Rabbi Schneerson. There's always these potential Messiahs on the horizon for Orthodox Judaism. And in fact, yeah, looking into the background of uh, Rabbi Kenyevsky, it doesn't really spell much promise. In fact, he was the the greatest rabbinical advocate for um, endorsing vaccination across all of Israel. So he was endorsing Pfizer more than maybe even Netanyahu himself back in the day amongst the Orthodox Jewish community. And naturally, even during the Shabbat and during the COVID lockdowns, he stated very clearly that, look, he said, during Shabbat, you could actually pick up the phone, and it doesn't count as work when you need to answer and pick up to find out your COVID-19 test results. So these are the type of people running the show in the background, completely warped ideologies, nothing even remotely traditional about these sort of worldviews, but nevertheless, they are predominant and powerful. And I suppose the last rabbinical narrative, which probably needs to be mentioned, is the 23 rabbis who signed a joint letter to the Ukrainian Minister of Justice asking for Kolomoysky to be released, or at least to be put on house arrest. And Kolomoysky, as we know, is serving wow. a sentence. So rabbinical rabbis, they are saying, and, you know, they claim that in the letter that Kolomoisky is actually a, you know, a, a big a founder of the Ukrainian Jewish community. He is officially the first or the second richest Ukrainian, uh, as in like in all of Ukraine, frankly, he's a multi-billionaire. So the fact that Zelensky's government actually allowed him to be prosecuted and now he's in prison, he does have this um sort of Orthodox Judaic support. So it's quite interesting that, you know, they have spoken out and they are, look, it's not just you know they're not claiming to, they're not claiming they're being persecuted but it's not just the orthodox church as having legal troubles right there's famous <laughs> famous jewish people in ukraine who are also experiencing legal troubles of their own very peculiar so it does kind of lead into this big subject of i suppose political persecution which you know has been intensifying very heavily against the orthodox christian church in in ukraine so, about a week in, now that we're a week in after, of course, the Ukrainian parliament has announced the Ukrainian Orthodox Church has been completely banned and illegal, there's been very different positions. Of course, those Ukrainian bishops on the Russian side have, of course, not reacted at all given that they're completely safe under Russian care. They're not going to be prosecuted by the Ukrainian justice system, and, and you know, they're not announced as anti-Ukrainian, they're just simply, they're free to practice the Orthodox faith completely unmolested. But nevertheless, in Ukraine itself, some bishops have taken very different, almost completely, uh, you know, different positions. For example, Archbishop Clement of Nizinsk and Prilutsk, he's the official spokesperson of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Anufri, so the canonical church, he actually said that this law has nothing to do with the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and nothing to do with Metropolitan Onufri, because he says, look, the Ukrainian Orthodox Christians, they're not under Moscow. We have autonomy. We have not autocephaly. He didn't say autocephaly, but we do have certain liberty and freedom that we, we can actually act without any Russian influence whatsoever. So this law simply does not apply at all. Meanwhile, another metropolitan of Sumi, actually, in the Sumi region, is it's, it's pretty much a very, very important region in Ukraine, actually in western, central western Ukraine. Bishop Yevlogius has officially called out Zelensky's persecution during a sermon. He actually officially announced that from here on in, none of the priests in his diocese are allowed to play, pray for Zelensky at holy liturgy anymore. So that's, uh, I think, a very powerful statement. Naturally, you know, we've pushed for this for a long time. Zelensky beginning the persecution, and uh, frankly, all the politicians of the, of the high rather Ukrainian parliament have pushed the persecution. They shouldn't be prayed for at all in any capacity, but, you know. given that they are these weird dueling the apostate type figures who are actually persecuting Orthodoxy very clearly. The biggest, of course, example of this persecution should be mentioned This uh, just this week. A priest from the Sumi Diocese, so that same diocese of Metropolitan of has been sentenced to 15 years in jail since the longest sentence we've seen thus far for us allegedly providing humanitarian aid to pro-Russian forces in Ukraine. So Russian soldiers or even people associated with the Russian incursion force. And then again, even I think if even if we read the court documents, it's probably could even be a bunch of fabrications, frankly, given that, you know, most of these uh, most of these lawsuits against the Ukrainian Orthodox priests are not substantiated in any capacity. But again not all the the ukrainian orthodox community is not the richest right they've uh orthodoxy in ukraine has struggled very hard for the last you can say 30 years but even pre that you know during the soviet union it hasn't been able to accrue many funds in fact it's probably one of the weakest areas of russian orthodoxy in general given the fact that ukraine has many many heretical groups has of course the presence of the catholics the jewish community is very powerful and it has to contend with just a lot of issues on the ground so the ukrainian diocese in these areas are very much uh, under pressure. They can't afford the best defence lawyers, so I think a lot of these priests are actually in a lot of trouble, and there isn't really a free legal, free legal assistance they can actually retain in order to properly protect themselves in court. So very troublesome over there in Ukraine. The persecution kind of moving forward step by step, but it really hasn't begun escalating. In fact, I think a lot of the bishops and hierarchs of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church still—I'm not sure. What position to take? The only reaction we've seen from Metropolitan Ury personally is that he stated, "Look, I've um, we're still, I'm still praying for the army." He said, "I'm still praying for the Ukrainian country and the people, and our government." And he said, that "We love everybody, and love will win in the end." So, you know, a very Christ-like fashion uh, statement. So, from Metropolitan Ury, and look, we have to still keep it open that there is a possibility, given everything, given everything that has occurred, that perhaps you can actually pray. Pray these demons away, pray the persecution away without actually calling to arms, without a call to, to action. Uh, but that's Metropolitan and opinion, and we'll see exactly what will transpire in the future. Um, but naturally, he can only be looked at as a figure who is persecuted, a confessor of the faith, and someone who potentially will be martyred for his stance against, the, for his stance of orthodoxy against any sort of schism in the Ukraine. He's a figure already which uh, is very much venerated locally.
0: Yeah, it seems that a lot of these places, whether it's Crimea or some of these other dioceses that were formerly under the UOC, they're they're going completely under the Moscow Patriarchate, directly under Patriarch Kirill. And the Crimea situation in general, while Crimea is continually still assaulted with these drone swarms, Dimitri, I'm wondering, I think it was Metropolitan Tikhon who was just sent now to Crimea, he addressed his flock and there's been some unfortunate just kind of military situations in general in Crimea, if I recall correctly.
1: Yeah, Crimea is very interesting. Crimea had two major stories this week. The first one is quite um, quite tragic, actually. The, uh, the former Donetsk politician, Oleg Tsarov, was actually shot outside of his house in Yalta, Crimea, twice. And he's in very critical condition in reanimation. He's only 54 years old, and he was one of the architects of the Ukrainian um, Donbass, Donbass, I suppose you can call it rebellion independence movement. So Oleg Tsarov, his last name is pretty cool. I Means just, uh, you know, of the Tsar, I suppose, but very cool Russian-Ukrainian last name. But Oleg is state loyal to that Novorossiya Donbass early vision, and <clears throat> from what I understand, he is a, a lightly practicing Orthodox Christian. Allegedly, he himself has stated he's badly catechized, but he does go to church. It's definitely praise praise, praise praise for Aleksandrov, who is currently in very critical condition, shot by it seems Ukrainian terrorist. Again, we're seeing Ukrainian terrorism and the SBU heavily active, uh, you know, planning bombs and shooting people all across Russia as well as as well as Ukraine proper and Crimea. Naturally, not being safe from that, as you mentioned, Ukrainian drones. They're definitely hitting civilian targets. That's just outright terrorism, similar to what we see in Gaza. But this is, of course, over here in Eastern Europe, naturally very negative. And I guess the. The good news uh, coming out of Crimea is that Metropolitan Tikhon has safely arrived and he's the new bishop of all Crimea and Simferopol. So Metropolitan Tikhon, famous for his book which he wrote while he was a priest, "Everyday Saints," which you know is one of the big, one of the largest Orthodox bestsellers, which we recommend everybody reads. The English translation, I think, is very good. And Metropolitan Tikhon has moved from Pskov And during his opening sermon uh, a few days ago, he did he did funny enough say that look, it's funny because Saint Olga and Saint Vladimir of Kiev the two. Equal to the apostle baptizers of all Russians and Ukrainians. They actually were born in Pskov as well, originally. Uh, you know, a thousand years ago, and then they traveled to Crimea in order to be baptized by the Greeks and brought into the Orthodox faith. So he's like, this is very providential. And even though in the olden days, Crimea was seen by the Byzantines and by the Greeks and Romans as a place of exile, (laughs) equivalent to like Siberia, where essentially Crimea was the place where the Byzantines would send people to live in their own, back into the exile, and it had certain like Greek gulags over here. So it wasn't really a nice place. But these days, Metropolitan uh, Tikhon did say that Crimea is, you know, he is looking forward to actually running it, and he's you know he spoke very good things about Metropolitan Lazarus, the previous Metropolitan of Crimea, despite, despite the fact that Metropolitan Lazarus, very interesting figure himself, actually going into retirement officially. But the question is, he's the former Metropolitan of Crimea. Now, Crimea became independent from the Russian Federation under his watch. Now, originally, where is Metropolitan Lazarus from? He's from Western Ukraine. So he's from places like Lvov. This is where he grew up. And this is where he went to university and things. So it's like I'm wondering if he'll if he's gonna go back home. And if he does, will the Ukrainian state actually target him as a Russian asset? So again, very strange. I'm not sure where Metropolitan Lazarus as now that now that he's going into retirement and he wants to, you know, just live the rest of his years out somewhere in peace. Can he actually go back home to Western Ukraine? Very, very curious situation in Crimea. So again I'll pray for Tsaryov who was shot and frankly um you know hopefully he does recover because he's been giving some very powerful takes in russian on sidegrad tv making some appearances on rt but mostly on sidegrad and always willing to give his interview takes given that he's one of the early figures alongside people like strelkov paul gubarev who have appeared on russian television and you know who have participated in these political debates he's one of the architects of this entire you know situation we're seeing and the freedom of the eastern ukrainian russian people he's he's one of the founders of that so much respect to him
0: yeah Patri- uh, metropolitan t is amazing and i recommend everybody read everyday saints i mean i think, can't remember who said it but someone said it's a contender for best book written in the 21st century and i think i think that's that's a real that's a real uh that's real so i think when it comes to this schism stuff, though, unfortunately, like I said, the persecution and the church stuff isn't just happening in Ukraine. And this is actually in, in Kosovo, as the Serbia-Kosovo issue actually continues to be a political issue. We'll talk about that in a second. But on Friday, October 20th, Father Fotier, a citizen of North Macedonia, and the long-standing abbot of the Divina Vada Monastery in Zvechan, was suddenly deported by Kosovo police. This is from Ortho-Christian. The document handed to him cited sections of the law related to national security, but specified no crimes that Father Focie was to have committed, reports the Serbian Orthodox Diocese of Roshka and Pizrin. Uh, Father Focie, he was only 42, he was a priest monk. He had already applied for permanent residency in Kosovo, and just 10 days before he was deported, he passed the Ministry of Internal Affairs immigration test. And it seems that uh, Ulex, the kind of, Union of Rule Law mission in Kosovo kind of trying to keep a attempt at Western civilization alive in that Muslim country. They just responded that it was due to reasons of national security, didn't give any details, and the Raska Prizren Serbian Orthodox Diocese, they commented and expressed its strongest protest concerning this unprecedented event in which a long-serving cleric of our diocese who has resided in Kosovo for 13 years, was deported without any clear explanation, barred from returning to Kosovo for the next five years, and had all his previous residence permits nullified. A similar attempt to expel a monk occurred a few years ago and was successfully resolved through the intervention of the Kosovo Ministry of Internal Affairs. The Rosca Preacher and Diocese will formally inform the EU, ULEX, ambassadors of the quint countries and international organizations dealing with the protection of religious and human rights about this case of overt persecution on religious national grounds, accompanied by the blatant violation of religious rights. With this brutal act, Kosovo institutions, without providing any specific reasons, have hindered the functioning of a monastery where Father Fautier served and have effectively initiated the overt persecution of the clergy and monasticism of our church in Kosovo. This is unacceptable and severely exacerbates the inter-ethnic and inter-religious situation in Kosovo. And this comes right on the heels of the situation where Vucic went and was about to sign a possible another deal with Kurti and the Kosovo authorities and the EU and everybody, but he walked out of the room, nothing got signed, and the reason people thought it was supposed to be signed was it seemed that Kurti was about to finally cave on the autonomous nature of Serbian municipalities in the north of Kosovo and Matoya. And, of course, we know in the past they had foisted these Albanian mayors on them, had completely forced them to pretend to be entirely Albanian-integrated towns into Kosovo, but, you know, even the EU were like, that's ridiculous, and people were smacking down Kurti. It seemed that Kurti may even have been on his way out. The Albanians were not a fan of what he was doing, but it seems he was ready to come to the table. But, fortunately, in the aftermath of the monastery issue a few months back, Vucic said he's never signing anything recognizing Kosovo, so it seems that perhaps the Kosovo authorities are like, well, if you're never going to recognize us, let's slowly but surely start deporting your priests, and of course the Serbska issue is still still going on and with Dodik and everything there, and people need to recognize that this is very much one of the conflicts that Look, we we may have thought that this would go hot before Israel-Gaza did, which just goes to show you how unexpectedly things can heat up in these types of ethno-religious conflicts. But I do have a little bit of breaking news I want to give everybody before we continue to talk about this schism stuff. Uh, this is following those accusations of the West and Israel, uh, that they're behind PKK militants. That's what Erdogan accused the West and Israel of doing. Uh, he called them Western Crusaders, all of that stuff. Israel has now recalled all of their diplomats from Turkey. The Minister of Foreign Affairs for Israel, Eli Cohen, he said, against the background of the harsh statements from Turkey, I ordered the return of the diplomatic representatives from Turkey in order to conduct a reassessment of Israel-Turkey relations. So this could be very big. It seems that Israel finally had enough of what Erdogan was saying. I'm wondering if Erdogan will tone it back or if he'll double down. I think that's an interesting thing to see. But as far as the Serbia issue goes, we're obviously going to be watching that closely as well. Novak Djokovic recently got his children baptized at the Ostrog Monastery in Montenegro. That was very good to see so i hope that i hope that serbian orthodoxy continues to grow in the region and that greater serbia
1: can be real yeah, that's right. A very similar situation, of course, occurred to a Russian archimandrite Vasian Smeyev who actually was stationed in Macedonia for a few years with the Russian embassy there in northern Macedonia, and until September early, early September this year, when he was, you know, very silently expelled out of northern Macedonia. And you may think, well, didn't the Macedonians just heal the Serbian Macedonian schism? They must be somewhat, uh, you know, somewhat at least on the eastern european and maybe probably anti-western maybe uh, more aligned with russia but no in fact they actually accused father vassian of being a straight up a russian spy directly <laughs> um, and of course f- Father Vassian, where where was he stationed next? seems that his administrative skills of these sort of embassy parishes, parishes adjacent to embassies, have garnered him a new position in Bulgaria. And so he was stationed in Sofia until very early October, 2nd or 3rd of October. There's a lot of news reports that came up. They said high-ranking Russian priest expelled from Bulgaria. And so again, Father Vassian's name has appeared, in fact. So he went from Northern Macedonia to Bulgaria. Again, expelled twice from two Eastern European countries for allegedly being you know, somehow related to the FSB or Russian intelligence agencies, unsubstantiated. Simply, the the authorities in these countries have stated Father Vassians may have the Eastern Orthodox right. So, like, that's a very high-ranking priest monk who has the authority to run, uh, essentially, a lavra, a high-end monastery of its own. So he definitely has. Well, it's almost the highest rank of priest monk before you essentially become a bishop, if you can say that. So. In terms of celibate clergy, he's definitely up there um, in terms of priest rank. But yeah, definitely expelled, and he's found himself a new position. And me and Conrad spoke about this. It's just hard to believe. So, this poor man has been getting pushed around all these Eastern European countries, and now Russia has found him a new designated location. On the 11th of October, Father Vassian was moved to Jerusalem, of all places, and he's now stationed in the West Bank of, in Palestine. So he's the leader of the Russian spiritual mission of Jerusalem. So as we know, uh, Rokor has a mission with an archimandrite on the Mount of Olives, and Father Vassian has his home base in Jerusalem at the Holy Trinity Cathedral in the center of Jerusalem city, you know, right next to essentially the, uh, the Knesset and the uh, Israeli parliament. So again, I'm not sure what Father Vassian did in order to deserve this particular placement. But maybe, but just, just maybe he's the kind of guy who could actually, you know, he has enough experience to actually be stationed in such a hot zone of world affairs. So we wish Father Vassian good health and not to stress too much, given the, the fact that he was literally moved post-October 7th. So once things have really escalated um, and hopefully he could lead the Russian Orthodox mission in Jerusalem to, you know, great prosperity, maybe more cooperation with Rokor, the Russian Moscow peace can maybe cooperate with the uh, Russian church outside of Russia and develop stronger relations there, because definitely, I think all all the Orthodox communities in Israel need to, and in Israel and Palestine, that being said, need to unite around this common Orthodox unity. I think it's very important, especially given the Russian church is experiencing a lot of political pressure, and it has been getting involved politically, both abroad and at home
0: well, I think so far, frankly, the only good thing that's come out of the situation in Israel and Gaza is some orthodox unity. Of course, the schism was healed between Antioch and Jerusalem. We see Patriarch Kirill standing in solidarity with both of them. The only people that are, are waffling, of course, continue to be the ecumenical patriarch who just continue to focus on their schismatic project in Ukraine. And, of course, Jerusalem Patriarchate, a Greek Patriarchate by heritage, has staunchly supported Russia in this issue, and that's that's a great thing. But It seems that the Russian church in general, they're facing not just schism issues, but we've covered on this show off and on the sort of, especially in Moscow, the urban areas specifically, the the kind of Muslim demographic issue that, that Russia is facing. And in the West, if there's one thing religious leaders are bad at, it's dealing with questions like this of identity, demographics, immigration. In the West, you see Pope Francis, he kisses African immigrants' feet. In the in America, we saw like black rappers for BLM getting their shoes washed in the midst of all these things. A very very different, I think, kind of type of religion than what we're than the Christianity we're seeing revived in Russia, the Third Rome. And Patriarch Kirill of Moscow, he said regarding the kind of mass Muslim immigration we're seeing. He says about Russia, we are a great country, we have huge expanses, but we do not have enough people. Alas, society is developing and someone needs to work. So there are guest workers who at first look like strangers, foreigners, they don't know how to speak. Then they start to communicate in Russian a little, then they marry Russians, become citizens. It appears that there is nothing wrong with this, but there is one risk. These kind of people do not become close to us, either in faith or culture. They have their own faith and culture. An educated, intelligent Russian person should respect both the faith and culture of other people. But if a different faith, a different culture, spreads so much that at some point they will equalize or, God forbid, will dominate, then we will lose the country. We will lose our identity. Therefore, without going into the subtleties of migration policy, I would like to emphasize once again that the desire to obtain cheap labor in the city of Moscow should not attract a huge number of people belonging to a different culture, to a different faith, often who do not know the Russian language and do not have respect for Russia and its people. I'm not talking about everyone, but there are also those who don't even bother learning our language. Therefore, interreligious, interethnic tensions, which in the future can hurt our society very much, are formed from minor elements of behavior, but tomorrow these little things will no longer be trifles. I understand that Moscow is growing, the type of houses we are building, and from the utilitarian point of view, we need a labor force. Moscow lacks this native blue-collar labor force, but these migrants will not go anywhere after the houses are built. They will stay here. I don't have any bad feeling towards Muslims. I have been engaged in relations with Russian church, with the Islamic community for many years, continue to engage to this day. We have historical Islamic communities in Moscow, but we are talking about demographic processes that can radically change the nature of our country and our state, Therefore, we need to think very carefully about how to work with this problem. I have some thoughts. I can't voice them here, unfortunately, but I believe that our political leadership, the captains of our industry, the intelligentsia, wrongly believe that what is that what is happening today can lead to well-being for everyone, and this can result in very big difficulties and problems for Russia, a multinational state, but the core of which is the Russian people. And not only is this just very important for a religious leader to say, but the timing is, is crucial. I mean, Russia is at it has better relations with the muslim world than it's ever had, worse relations with the west than ever. Yet Patriarch Kirill, he is not he knows that yeah, this is how it's going to be. So this problem is only going to increase. So I need to make this statement now. Like it would be really easy to make this statement if we were at if it, during some chechen war or something like that, but he's saying this at the height of Russo-Islamic relations because it's an important point to make. He actually cares about preserving Russian identity. So I think it's it's just so refreshing to see not just a church leader, but One of the biggest church leaders in the world, like besides the Pope and maybe certain Catholic bishops and whatnot, I don't think any bishop has a larger flock than Patriarch Kirill.
1: Yeah, that's right. And he's saying this, like, in light of Hamas representatives, of course, traveling to Russia, in, in spite of Lavrov traveling to Tehran, all these relations being built between the Russian Shia, the Sunni communities abroad. And he's making making a clear statement that, look, immigration from the Central Asian countries and immigration from, you know, people of the Caucasus moving into the major Russian cities and forming crime gangs, things like that. These are all things occurring and they're not, they're very impossible to ignore for the majority Russian population. But nevertheless, you know it doesn't necessarily destroy russian islamic relations it simply needs to be pointed out in order for it to be amended like 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 an illness of some sort it needs to be diagnosed first and then it could be mended to and maybe representative representatives of the muslim community could be approached and actually spoken to about this particular matter but nevertheless the, the chief mufti of moscow's community is actually spoken out against the patriarch kirill uh so he gave a very like a very really staunch statement basically saying that look um, it's important for the Russians themselves to be interested in preserving the traditions of the people to have patriotic mindsets. only that which initially has a crack can be destroyed again. It's like what crack are we speaking about here? If there's a crack, maybe you, the grand mufti of Moscow, should be interested in healing that crack, not claiming that, look, we're still going to continue bringing in these immigrants, because, you know, if there's a crack, that means that we have some authority, or we have we have the leeway to destroy Russian patriotic unity or Russian culture, for example. Again, very bizarre. I guess he's probably just trying to build clout off the fact that there's several muftis across Russia who hold positions of authority, and the patriarch, of course, is maybe even a target, and naturally he can't start up some sort of anti orthodox movement. So he's just saying that, look, he's using this as a tool in order to speak out against that patriarch. Quite disturbing, given the fact that, you know, the Islamic immigration issue, naturally, he him being a native Tatar actually affects him more than it does even native Russians, because these Muslims coming from abroad, non-native Russians, not native Tatars, not Chechens, not Dagestanis, are actually giving Muslims at home, those who, you know, they call the Russian Federation their home, they are natives to this land. They're giving them a bad rap and a bad a bad name for some of the actions that they're doing for some of the criminal, you know, the very bizarre acts that we're seeing and also the just the illegal labor that they're forcing upon the economy, which is. Definitely causing a lot of distress at home. So again, the the chief Mufti's reaction to Patriarch Kirill's very diplomatic statement. Like we've spoken about this with Father John Whiteford on our A for hour episode. Patriarch Kirill has always had this, whether it's towards the Malankara Indian Christians, whether it's towards the Muslims, or even even the Russian Jewish community, he's always had a very diplomatic outlook. If anything, he is first and foremost, and he's a former he was the former head of, I suppose you can say, um, church and wider community relations. So he's a very diplomatic bishop to begin with. And just to kind of sideline that from the Mufti was very uh, kind of an underhanded strike. But nevertheless, you know, what else can you expect from these people who are just seeking attention and uh, prideful egoism?
0: Yeah, the Mufti Ildar Ayatanov, he's a Tatar Russian. And I just have to say, he literally is the spitting image of smug jack you all know who i'm talking about the 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 glasses beard jack you know smugly looking at you while rome while the thomas cole destruction of empire painting that we use for world war now in the background but how does this affect you personally he literally did that he's saying like russia has its own problems you can't blame muslim immigrants you know patriarch kirill is saying is saying these muslims are not accepting our faith some not even learning our language this is affecting our identity and the muftis like uh how does this affect you personally so we we tweeted about that and i saw like over 150 quote tweets of just smug jack, because the guy literally looks exactly like him. It's insane. But that, that's a pretty fun story. But uh, moving on, we got to start wrapping up here a second, but there's just so much to talk about. Of course, Niger in Africa, that's the other big front of the war that's kind of developed, although in a positive direction. It seems that the U.S. is willing to develop diplomatic relations with Niger's junta. Iran is also developing relations with the junta, so Niger about to be diplomacy-maxing across the multipolar world. But all the ECOWAS troops in countries like uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, and Nigeria that were called up for a potential mobilization against the junta for a possible total East African war with Mali, Burkina Faso, Guinea, Niger on one side, and you know Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, Nigeria you know, Benin, Togo, these countries on the other side. It seems that that's not happening anymore. Those troops have all been decommissioned sent home. So the Niger-Hunta is here to stay. Wagner is here to stay. And I think we have rumors of Wagner returning to the front line in Ukraine as well. So it appears that maybe the U.S. intelligence and French intelligence got rumor that Wagner's revamping, you know, the, the craziness since the death of Prigozhin and Utkin has died down and there's just no hope for ever returning the Sahel region to Francophone African influence. It seems that that's, that's the conclusion.
1: Yeah, that's right. And speaking about just diplomacy and things working out now that we're coming to the end of the episode, we do need to mention a few days ago the United Nations Security Council actually went overtime in its heated discussion of the Palestinian Israeli conflict and actually made a straight up voted 15 member countries of the Security Council made a direct vote for peace between Israel and Palestine. And especially in Gaza, they asked for Israel to stand, stand down. And of course, which country voted to break like this diplomatic standstill? It was voted against. This particular, um, you know, decision, of course, it was the United United States, naturally. United States, of course, was known to veto any decision which doesn't benefit Israel since 1945, essentially out of like, 36, I think, United Nations resolutions, the US vetoed 34 of them. So anything that doesn't benefit Israel at this time, the US seems to just intervene and break any sort of, uh, you know, long-lasting diplomatic relations. I think this was probably the most negative story over the last few days because, you know, we all look towards the United Nations as a sort of mean. It was, United Nations hasn't assisted ECOWAS, hasn't assisted any of these states in uh, in Northern Africa in order to solidify peace. The United Nations didn't assist Libya. And now for the first time, the United Nations has has attempted to at least form some sort of coalition of peace, right, in on the Security Council, in order to stop this bloodshed in the Middle East, and in fact, the U.S. has voted against it. So again, it's just the uh, it just kind of paints, it paints a very direct picture of what's happening abroad. The U.S. is not the spokesperson for peace that we see in world affairs. In fact, it could be the greatest uh, the greatest harbinger of war that we've seen in, in the last few decades. And I know most people around the world are already aware of this, given the Iraq War, the bombardment of Yugoslavia and Serbia, and of course, taking of Kosovo. All of these things. But now I think given that you know, people are dying as we speak, as this episode airs, I think it becomes very obvious as to who the personal, the main culprit is of pushing this globalist agenda in the world. And then
0: again, you know, St. Paisios, Metropolitan Neofitos, you got to you gotta keep up with what they're saying because it's all relevant. But you're about to witness a live World War Now vindication. I spoke about Pakistan and how Imran Khan, if he was in power, thinks might be going even more dramatically. Imran Khan, the former president of Pakistan, he delivered a message from jail about the ongoing genocide in Gaza saying, the Muslim world should not just raise their voice against this, but should move to ensure an end to the Gaza genocide. This comes as there's protests in Islamabad, Pakistan, as crowds try to storm u s consulates and u s presences there and in general the and this uh, the Israeli ambassador to uh the u n he said of Erdogan that he will he's a snake will remain a snake and he accuses the Turkish president of staying anti-semitic so you know Erdogan you know Israel Pakistan you know the Turkish belt you know Pakistan some say is you know an ally of an ally of Turkey and everything they are uh, you know that that Turkish Islamic belt is really flexing its muscles here against Israel but you know, we got to start wrapping up here. There's so many things we could have talked about. Japan has restarted ferries to Russia to Vladivostok in the Far East. The U.S. has threatened to go to war with China if they make moves against the Philippines and China. You know, they do, they recently had big collisions with Filipino ships in the South China Sea. Slovakia, their new president, Robert Fico, has completely cut aid to Ukraine, said no more. And, you know, him and, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban might be meeting up. And, you know, who knows, maybe Putin will be traveling to Hungary soon to perhaps do some peace talks because Hungary is really, really ramping up the pro-Russian rhetoric, being like, yeah, we're friends with Russia. What are you going to do about it, especially as the Israel stuff really distracts everybody? But, yeah, I mean, big things happening. Stay tuned. Be sure to follow us everywhere. Dimitri, do you have any reactions to this stuff with, with Pakistan, Turkey, Israel? There's just so much going on.
1: Yeah, only I think uh, we, we do have to always keep an eye on Indian-Pakistani relations. Again, Pakistan is that uh, sort of dark horse in the race, given that it is a nuclear power. You, you know, we speak about a lot about Iran not having nuclear nuclear weapons, but Pakistan definitely has them, has strategic nuclear weapons, which, which can fly, like you can say, almost half halfway around the world and actually hit strategic targets. Definitely a bit lax slightly in terms of deployment, but nevertheless, Pakistan is that You know, as as I said, the dark horse in this uh, Islamic world, which could you know, they definitely pivot either to the to the pro Shia or the pro Sunni side, and in this case, I think it's most likely correct to use any to use any rhetoric it can in order to stop the bloodshed in Gaza. I think the entire Islamic world, and you know, as you said, we said at the beginning, Saudi Arabia, like they keep talking about Al Aqsa Mosque being the third holiest site in Islam, but uh, Mecca and Medina are the first two and they are within Saudi Arabian borders. So the onus is, again, on Saudi Arabian, all of these Muslim countries in order to sort out their own situation. We can't expect, like we said on the prior episodes, we can't expect for Russia and China to do all the diplomatic hard work. We see the US essentially just, you know, Biden just getting completely drunk and this you know ordering his UN UN ambassador to veto the the resolution. So the US is not not the solidifying diplomatic factor here. It's Russia, China working their butts off, right? Working with Hamas, working with all these different interest groups, even the Israeli ones actually. So Russia didn't kick out the Israeli ambassadors or anything like that. They're working with everybody together in order to bring peace and China is too in fact it, it looks like the Israeli Americans are the ones who are actually the most unreasonable. And I think in order to kind of end this, we do need to mention that following the United Nations resolution, the Israeli foreign minister actually called called the UN secretary to resign. The uh, UN General Secretary, for what? For calling for humanitarian aid and peace in Gaza. I think this is just bizarre, unhinged behavior from Israeli politicians, whether it be Netanyahu, the foreign minister, or even the minister of finances, who stated very openly that this conflict with Palestine and Gaza will be costing 250 million American dollars, 1 billion shekels a day. It's like, who's paying for this, buddy? Again, uh, it's mostly American taxpayers, mostly Christian taxpayers in Western countries who are paying for this Israeli genocide of the Palestinians. Very sad reality, I think, on the ground over there in the Middle East.
0: It's World War now, everybody. And, you know, we've been bringing it to you for a year and it's it's only been getting hotter and hotter. Uh, I think when it comes to Israel and their foreign policy and how they should be treated, Nick Fuentes has made this point. Others, from America First perspective, Israel should be isolated and treated like a pariah state. They are literally... The Jewish population is less than like 0.2% of the world population. It's this tiny country, yet they are doing everything they can to drag us into a genocidal, drag us into supporting a genocidal ground invasion and ultimately going to war with most of the world, frankly, and the historic enemies of the Jewish people. So as Americans, we need to stand up to that and say no more. And frankly, I almost agree with Hamas leader Ghazi Ahmad, who says he demands the expulsion of Israeli ambassadors from Arab and Islamic countries. I think from an America First perspective we would have kicked the Israeli mission to America out a long time ago. But with all of that being said, you can find us on worldwarnow.substack.com. Follow us on Telegram, World War Now Tele. That's really where we're updating you live, minute by minute. Things are coming in all the time, so be sure to follow us there worldwarnow.substack.com. Find our most recent Ether Hour episode on Konstantin Pobodilnaztiv. It's a great episode. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at GnomeRad. Follow Dimitri at OCanonist. Follow the World War Now Twitter, worldwarnow underscore. We're almost at 10,000 followers, so get on there. If you're not on X, make an account. Support Free Speech. Sure, it has... It has some problems. It's getting there, but, you know, we, we can all do our best to talk and influence the the situation, especially regarding Israel-Palestine and supporting the Christians in the region. Uh, be sure to support the Christians. Go to the Order of St. George fundraiser. We'll have that linked below again. They've raised over $100,000 for the Christians in Gaza and the West Bank, so it's going really well. Continue to do that because they need your support now more than ever. Uh, Be sure to follow us on YouTube, subscribe, World War Now, subscribe on Rumble, also World War Now. Leave a comment. It really means a lot to us. And with all that being said, Dimitri, I'll leave it to you.
1: Yeah, God bless everyone, and we have some great guests coming up, some big interviews, and just collaborations around big people in the geopolitical space online, as well as some of the some major Orthodox Christian guests lined up for future months. I think you'll be very excited as to what we have coming up for you guys. And definitely, if you want to support, make sure you subscribe on Substack. In terms of monetary assistance and the content that you receive subscribing to Substack, it's over you know 25, 30 hours at this point of eight hour episodes, very unique, uncensored, unfiltered you know perspectives from the Orthodox Christian perspective on geopolitics that we usually provide in world war now but on more niche subjects you know historical topics conspirology things of that nature very very uh interesting content which you definitely probably most likely won't find anywhere else in the english language so i think that's the kind of unique stuff we bring to you so definitely if you feel like subscribing do so and uh thank you to all the uh, priests and deacons listening as well the fathers bless us and we apologize if we made any mistakes during the recording again uh some of this news that we're covering is actually developing as we speak so we're literally watching the news feed and recording at the same time so things are quite exciting and uh definitely somewhat scary as well, because we see most of the clairvoyant prophecies of our great saints and elders coming to fruition before our very eyes. And hopefully we'll find some peace in the future in Ukraine and the Middle East. Um, Let's pray for that. I think just like our holy hierarchs have called us to do the Patriarch of Jerusalem. So thank you guys and God bless. Uh, We appreciate you listening and supporting us.
0: I mean, as of now, George Bush just threw an opening pitch at a baseball game. He did the same thing right after 9-11. So as Metropolitan Neofito said, are you worried about Israel and Persia yet? Well, you should be. So, World War Now, everybody. Thanks so much.